I invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 122 as we begin. This will not be the text that I'll be preaching from, but it certainly captures the spirit of the psalmist in the psalm we will be reading and meditating upon. I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem that is built as a city that is compact together, to which the tribes go up, even the tribes of the Lord, an ordinance for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. For thrones there are were set for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. And we'll stop there. Let's pray together. Lord Father, we pray that we would have that same spirit of David, even the spirit of the greater son of David, who was regularly, week by week, Sabbath by Sabbath, found in the temple and in the synagogue, worshiping you, the one true and living God, that we would say, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord, that we might meet you here. We might see you in all the splendor of your holiness, opened before the eye of faith to see. Lord, we come here weak and weary, distracted. We pray that you would direct our attention You would give us strength to worship you. You would wash our worship in the blood of Christ. For the very best deeds that we can do are tainted by sin. And therefore, we thank you that we're accepted in the beloved. We pray that you would accept our worship through him who is seated at your right hand, whoever lives to make intercession for us. He who interceded for us with his blood upon the cross, we pray that even now he would intercede at your right hand with prayers that we might be visited by grace from on high. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, most of us left our home this morning with the purpose to come to church, as is our custom each Lord's Day. And as we begin, let me pose a question to get us thinking. What did you come to church to do? Now, most of us here would answer something like this. I came to church, of course, to worship God. I would then ask, well, what is involved in the worship of God? To put it differently, what is essential to the public worship of God on the Lord's Day, especially in our disposition? What activities should occupy us and what attitudes are proper for contemplation of God on his day? Well, please open your Bibles with me to Psalm 92. Turn back a few Psalms. And that is certainly the subject of the Psalm that we're going to consider this morning. Our focus here upon these words is our happy duty to come and to praise God with all of our hearts, I trust. 
Because God is good all the time, we should live each day with an attitude of gratitude. We should be always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God. So we have to ask ourselves this question. Is my life characterized by a spirit of gratitude the other six days of the week? And if it is, shouldn't I be all the more thankful and glad to come at the feet of God in adoring worship here on the Lord's Day? Well, David, the man after God's own heart, and the likely penman of Psalm 92, thought so. Follow with me as I read the 92nd Psalm. A psalm, a song for the Sabbath day. It is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to thy name, O Most High, to declare thy loving kindness in the morning and thy faithfulness by night with a ten-string lute and with the harp, with resounding music upon the lyre. For thou, O Lord, hast made me glad by what thou hast done. I will sing for joy at the works of thy hands. How great are thy works, O, O Lord! Thy thoughts are very deep. A senseless man has no knowledge, nor does a stupid man understand this. That when the wicked sprouted up like grass, and all who did iniquity flourished, it was only that they might be destroyed forevermore. But thou, O Lord, art on high forever. For behold, thine enemies, O Lord, for behold, thine enemies will perish, and all who do iniquity will be scattered. But thou hast exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. I have been anointed with fresh oil, and my eye has looked exultantly upon my foes, my ears hear of the evildoers who rise up against me. The righteous man will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still yield fruit in old age. They shall be full of sap and very green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. David wrote Psalm 92 to be a song of thanksgiving and praise, to be sung with musical accompaniment in public worship on the Lord's Day. And brethren, we're reminded right away that the Old Covenant Sabbath was not merely a day of rest, but also a day of public worship. What the old writer, uh, what Moses called a day of holy convocation. Singing in public worship was largely undertaken by the sons of Asaph as Levi's on behalf of the worshiping congregation. No doubt Psalm 92 was sung in the homes of God's people, but it was also sung in their collected worship as they met on the Sabbath. David begins Psalm 92 by stating 
that Sabbath worship should include holy, lusty singing of praise and thanksgiving to God. In the remainder of the psalm, he gives various reasons why we should express our gratitude to him in public worship. In verses 1 through 3, we learn that our first and last spiritual exercises of the day should be bathed in thanksgiving. In Old Covenant Sabbath worship, this likely refers to the morning and evening sacrifices performed by the priesthood on behalf of the worshipers. How appropriate is thanking God for His loving kindness every morning? My wife and I often pray in the morning as we meet together to prepare for the day that we thank God for preserving our lives, keeping us during our helpless hours throughout the night. Indeed, He has kept us and He promises us that He will enable us the grace and the strength to face the trials that we meet each day. And then at night we come before Him with thankfulness because He has been true to His covenant by providing the strength we needed throughout the day. In these and other ways we are made glad by His works that sustain us and glorify His name. And then in verses 4 through 11, we are urged to sing of God's great works in the world, which include His judgment of the wicked. And this is only right and good and should be expected as we praise the God of faithfulness and righteousness. One has well observed that it is a weak and perilous tenderness which permits evil to continue its work of destruction. That is a strong and tender pity which without relenting smites evil and destroys it. Well, brethren, let us rejoice and sing of God's just judgment upon the wicked who live in rebellion against our good and gracious God. And to that end, may they humble themselves under His mighty hand and flee to Christ in repentance and faith if they would escape the wrath to come. The Sabbath song ends in verses 12 through 15 with a happy description of the continual spiritual growth and perpetual freshness and usefulness of aged saints in the courts of the Lord. Indeed, if you're of that gray-haired part of the congregation, did you not come here to sing gratefully to God as you ripen, bearing fruit, even in the autumn of your lives as you continue to declare the righteousness of the God who is your rock. Now, this morning we have three headings by way of exposition and then a few words of application. Our first question we're going to seek to answer is this. To whom should we be thankful now, we just celebrated Thanksgiving. It's a day that should be celebrated every day of our lives. But as a nation, we celebrate the fourth Thursday in November. And a lot of folks were gathered around tables, and some of them expressed their thanksgiving. But not all expressed their thanksgiving to God. 
This psalm teaches us that all of our thanks should be directed to God. Yes, we should be thankful for, for people who are instruments of God's goodness in our lives. They should be thanked, but it is God Himself who is the author of all of our blessings. So to whom should we be thankful? Well, David names him here, and he gives him two names. First of all, he is the Lord. He is Jehovah, or Yahweh. Who is the Lord? Well, his name is used so many times in the Scriptures, all we can do is but briefly summarize what the Lord's name means. He is the eternal, uncreated God, the maker of heaven and earth. He's not a God of time and chance. He's not the invention of pagans. He's not the God of those who promote evolution. No, Psalm 100, verse 3. Know that the Lord, that is Jehovah himself, is God. It is he who made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Furthermore, he is the only God and deliverer, therefore worthy of our undivided and undistracted devotion. Exodus 20, verses 2 and 3. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. He's the only God. He has the right to all of mankind's exclusive devotion. Furthermore, he is the incomparable God, the almighty redeemer of his covenant people. Indeed, we saw that. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. We sing of that, or they did, in, on the other side of the Red Sea after the destruction of Pharaoh and his armies, while their bodies, bloated bodies, were still bobbing in the water. Who is a God, or excuse me, who is like thee among the gods? Exodus 15, 11. Who is like thee among the gods, O Lord? Their gods didn't help them. They didn't deliver them. Indeed, God's judgment upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and all of those plagues was judgments upon the various gods of the Egyptians. And so they sing, Who is like thee among the gods, O Lord? Who is like thee, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? There's no God like you. You're the only God. You're the great God. You're the glorious one. David testifies of Jehovah in this psalm, the 92nd. It's the Lord who dwells on high. He's characterized by loving kindness and faithfulness. He gladdens us by his wondrous works. He amazes us by his deep thoughts. He cheers us by destroying his enemies and scattering the wicked. He plants us in his house, making us fruitful to the end of our days. This is the God that we come here to worship. But notice he's also most high. He's the Lord most high. He's Elion. The Bible teaches us a number of things about Elion. 
He is possessor of heaven and earth. He gives nations as an inheritance to his people. He thunders from heaven and destroys his enemies. He gives his people unshakable confidence. His dwelling place, like a refreshing river, makes glad the people of God. He is to be feared as the great king over all the earth. He is the one to whom his people cry, who accomplishes all things for them. He is our rock and our redeemer. He establishes Zion, the city of God's people. He shelters those who seek him as their dwelling place and refuge, for they abide under the shadow of his almighty wings. From his mouth go forth both good and ill. He rules all mankind, bestowing rule upon whom he wills, as Daniel says. He is the one under whose shadow Jesus was conceived in the womb of his mother Mary. He is the God who adopts all Christians as his sons. We are sons of the Most High God. Uniting these two names, Jehovah and Elyon, Psalm 97, verse 9, For thou art the Lord Most High over all the earth. Thou art exalted above all gods. Psalm 47, and verse 2, For the Lord Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. You see, these texts speak of his universal rule as the only God. He is to be feared by all mankind. So we read of him in the first verse of our psalm. It is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to thy name, O Most High. So to whom should we be thankful? To the Lord Most High. Brethren, this God is our God. Moses is God. David's God. Jeremiah's God. All of the old covenant people of God. This was their God and this is our God. He's the same yesterday, today and forever. He has made us to praise him and to thank him. And each and every one of our blessings come from an almighty divine person. They don't come from a cosmic power. They don't come from chance or karma or lucky stars or good fortune or the kiss of lady luck. They come from Jehovah Most High. They don't come by accident. They come on purpose, given to us by a personal God. So let us live in a spirit of lively gratitude before him every day. Second question, why should we be thankful? Well, we aren't left to guess. We know it's our duty. But notice what David says. We are told that it is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to thy name, O Most High. You see, it is good to thank a good God. We should expect that. Now think about it. Do you, not I, live from hand to mouth? That is, from God's hand to our mouth? What are our thanksgivings but kisses upon the, the generous hand of our gracious God? 
And viewed in this way, why do we find it so hard at times to pucker our spiritual lips when the good hand of God is ever before us? Well, it's called sin. Sin is the reason why. We don't see it, and we don't respond rightly to it. Thanksgiving that begins in the heart, David teaches, cannot but spill out of our mouths in songs of praise. You can tell a happy child, oftentimes, because he or she is singing. We should be that kind of people, because great things God has done for us. Gratitude, not grumbling, should be the default disposition of all of our hearts. Should it not? They will be if our hearts are right before God. A spirit of thankfulness should perfume our worship. Are we not exhorted to enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise, to give thanks to Him, bless His name, for the Lord is good, His loving kindness is everlasting, and His faithfulness to all generations? Can we enter into that? And this is not something that's just understood in the head. Its effects are felt in the heart. We can say amen to a lot of truths that we don't feel. But we'll sing those things that we do feel. I'll leave you with an observation. If we come to the Lord's public worship, grumbling and not grateful, if we find it drudgery and not a delight to be here, beloved, the problem lies with us and not with God and His worship. If gratitude to God is our due, ingratitude is serious sin. Gratitude is the gracious oil that lubricates the machinery of our Sabbath worship rendering it acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. A sense of duty may drive us here, but a spirit of gratitude will draw us here. You see, decorum may keep us here at church, but gratefulness will bless us while we're here. You see, to the degree that we are grateful to God, we will call the Sabbath a delight. And to that degree, our worship will be pleasing to God. You know that gratitude brings its own blessing. Who are happier than thankful people? Especially when the object of their thankfulness is the Lord Most High. If, if we contemplate His his great works and His deep thoughts, it will make us thankful that God should think of us and act so graciously toward us. He's not just in the business of holding the spheres in orbit around. He doesn't just hold the universe in the hollow of His hand. He, by His great power, exercises mercy and loving kindness toward us. He not only thinks about all, everything that we can't even conceive in holding this universe together by the word of His power. He thinks about us. He thinks about you. And He thinks about me. There's never a moment. There never was a moment, even in eternity, when we weren't loved by the living God. 
Even when we were, as it were, a figment in his mind before we had substance and before we sat here in this, in this congregation, he thought about us. How can you wrap your mind around that? But it's true. Never should God have to exhort, extort thanksgiving from the benefactors of his blessings because they all say that there's a good God who has given you this. But I hear you say, yeah, that's easy for you to say, but you don't know how hard my life is. Well, let me ask you, is your life harder than David's? Is your life harder than he who was anointed with the oil of joy above his fellows, even the Lord Jesus Christ? He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And yet it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Is your life, let's just look at David. Is it harder than David's? Has God never been your deliverer as he was the son of Jesse? Psalm 54, verses 3 through 7. For strangers have risen against me, and violent men have sought my life. They have not set God before them. That's why they're after him. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of my soul. He will recompense the evil to my foes. Destroy them in thy faithfulness. So in the midst of all of his trials and struggles, when it seems like he can't focus upon anything else than those that are after him, breathing out threats and slaughter against him, he says, willingly, I will sacrifice to thee. I will give thanks to thy name, O Lord. Why? For it is good. You who have brought about all these things in my life, you haven't become less good than you've always been. You're perfectly good. And in the midst of all these things, I testify to that fact. David goes on to say, For he has delivered me from all trouble, and my eye has looked with satisfaction upon my enemies. I would observe here, Christian, God lavishes his goodness on you, doesn't he? What do you have that you've not received? What would you regard as a fitting return to him for all of his kindness to you? Do you think that a grateful heart is too much to ask? Compare what you receive from God and what you deserve from Him. Do you not have blessings enough to fill your mouth with praise all your days? See, it's not our circumstances, beloved. It's our attitude toward our circumstances that either make us grumbling or glad. Because God is good in the midst of it all. Whether you have balmy breezes at your back or you have a squall line coming forth right, right toward you with lightning and thunder and terrific wind. Thirdly, 
for what should we be thankful? Well, the New Testament commands us to give thanks to God in everything, to praise Him from whom all blessings flow. Well, specifically, David urges us to thank God for the blessings of His loving kindness and faithfulness. Well, what are God's loving kindness and faithfulness? Well, in a nutshell, God's loving kindness is His infinite, eternal, unearned, unfailing, covenant love flowing to us through Jesus Christ, the Son of His love. It's a word of covenant affection toward a special people who are the apple of God's eye. God's faithfulness speaks of His firmness his fidelity, his steadfastness, his steadiness that brings to pass all of his blessing. God's faithfulness never fails. It's faithful infinitely. How crucial a spirit of Gratitude is to uphold us when dark providences cast their shadow upon our lives. When Jeremiah viewed the smoking rubble of his beloved Jerusalem, when God seemed to have utterly abandoned his covenant people, the prophet refused to doubt God's promises. He continued to believe that Jehovah never changes, even when experiencing his severe divine chastening. And so the weeping prophet consoled himself with the glorious truth that God had not forgotten faithfulness nor abandoned his loving kindness. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, we have both of these expressions. These words, power-packed, filled with blessing. The Lord's loving kindnesses doesn't say the Lord's loving kindness, singular. The Lord's loving kindness says, Indeed, never cease. But Jeremiah doesn't, doesn't the providence of God seem to belie the, the promises of God? How can it be? Jeremiah says the loving kindnesses, the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. Why? For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And David here in the 92nd Psalm teaches us that it is not only appropriate, but it is our duty to sing our praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And it should be pleasant so to do. There's a time to be silent and there's a time to speak. When we are commanded to sing God's praises, silence would be treachery against the Most High. Jesus warned that if His people didn't praise Him, the very stones would cry out. And sometimes we sit here like stocks and stones. Brethren, let us sing, and not just with our mouths, but with our whole hearts. I suggest to you that muffled praise dishonors Christ. 
He who who gladly encouraged the loud hosannas of Jerusalem's children desires and deserves our hearty praise. So let me ask you, do you come here on the Sabbath intentionally to lift your voice in thanksgiving and praise? See, it's it's dispositional. We have to sometimes crank ourselves around. We have to elevate ourselves by the grace of God to stand upon the rock that is higher than we and look down upon the panorama of our lives from the vantage points of a good God who's working everything together for our good. This is the day that God has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. We've come to worship the Lord of the Sabbath who made the Sabbath for us, for our bodily rest, for our spiritual invigoration, to sing His praise. Of all days, this is the best and should be the most joyous. We get closest to heaven every seventh, every, every Lord's day. If we drone out our singing here, that's not a very good dress rehearsal for glory. Shall we meet in the presence of the Most High and not seek to stimulate one another to love and good deeds? Shall we not teach and admonish one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? Brethren, let us remember that Christ is not exalted, we learned this this morning, by lukewarm devotion or honored with muffled singing. We don't have a thousand tongues. Charles Wesley wished that he did. Do we have that same kind of desire when we come here? Lord, help me to trumpet through my poor mouth your glorious praise. Shall we express more enthusiasm about sports and politics or our work or even our family than about God's loving kindness and faithfulness and about Him who has made us glad? That we find it difficult to enter into the spirit of this psalm reveals just how earthbound we are and how the trivialities of this perishing world occupy our thoughts and crowd out thoughts of God and the great issues of eternity, just how easily fixed we may be upon things that are destined to burn. And so we honestly confess in song, we have not known thee as we ought, nor learned thy wisdom, grace, and power. The things of earth have filled our thought and trifles of the passing hour. Lord, give us light, thy truth to see, and make us wise in knowing Thee. So for what should we be thankful? Specifically, why should we sing praise to God? First of all, let us thank God for His great works and deep thoughts that should make us glad. Verses 4 and 5. For thou, O Lord, hast made me glad by what thou hast done. I will sing for joy at the works of thy hands. How great are thy works, O Lord! Thy thoughts are very deep. 
what God has done in His mighty works of creation and in providence and in redemption should rejoice our wondering hearts. What God is like our God, perfect in wisdom, unlimited in power, accomplishing all of His purposes in this world. And His thoughts, are they not infinitely higher than the thoughts of the world's greatest thinkers? Far beyond the musings of mighty angels? Who can fathom the infinite depths of the mind of God? Well, certainly we never will, but we're commanded, we're exhorted. It should be our great privilege to come here and muse about those things and sing praise to God about them. Psalm 40, verse 5, Many, O Lord, my God, are the wonders which Thou hast done, and Thy thoughts toward us. There is none to compare with Thee. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count, David says. In another place, David says, How precious also are Thy thoughts to me, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. I'm with thee because your uncountable thoughts are toward me and toward me for good. That God's mind comprehends all things that could be and all things that are in this wide universe is amazing to ponder but that he continually thinks of you and me is amazing beyond comprehension. We are ever in the mind of God. He was, he's always thinking benevolent thoughts toward us if we're his people. So writes the hymn, hymnist, All that I am I owe to thee, thy wisdom, Lord, has fashioned me. I give my Maker thankful praise, whose wondrous works my soul amaze. Thy thoughts, O God, how manifold, more precious unto me than gold. I muse on their infinity, awaking I am still with thee. So let us thank God for his great works and his deep thoughts that make us glad. Secondly, let us thank and praise God that we will not perish with the wicked. We see this in verses 6 through 9. Oh, the wretched state of the enemies of God, the enemies of God's people. Behold their folly, their senselessness, their brevity, and their destruction. Set in contrast, the eternal God, forever beyond the reach and impervious to the intrigues of wicked men. Tragic, oh how tragic is the plight of the wicked. They are utterly without excuse before God. They know instinctively Him as their creator and their sustainer, but they roundly reject Him, and therefore God's wrath abides upon them. It must be so, since God is righteous. Doubly tragic is the fact that every blessing from God's good and generous hand should lead them to repentance. He gave rain and fruitful seasons and satisfied their hearts with food and gladness, Paul says, to pagans. Paul writes in Romans 1 and verse 21, For even though they knew God, they knew Him 
All men know him. There's no such thing as a real atheist in the world. All men know God by virtue of the fact that they've been created in his image. They have his law written upon their hearts. They have eyes to see his blessings all around them. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. They wanted to live in darkness and God darkens their heart. Sobering words, these, are they not? Brethren, let us not lose sight of the message of our psalm. Contemplation of God's destruction of the wicked, as terrible as it is, should inspire worship of the Most High. He's a good God. He's a just God. When we are reminded of God's coming judgment as we worship on the Sabbath, let us be encouraged that the Most High will triumph all, over all of His and our enemies. And dear ones, let us be reminded too that no person is the loser for trusting the Lord. Indeed, it is the fool that has said in his heart, there is no God. It's the fool that has said in his heart, I will never have to stand before him. It's the fool that, will say, that says, I will never go to hell. God has a word to such. I will judge sin and punish sinners because I'm righteous and good. The Lord Most High sits upon the throne of the heavens and he laughs at all such God deniers. Oh, that God would grant them repentance and faith. Indeed, we were once like that, many of us, were we not? And God had mercy upon us. The day of grace is not over. The sun hasn't set upon God's mercy. That means there are many elect yet to be gathered in. And brethren, if we're tempted to arrogance, let us ever remember our own sin and never forget our own worthiness of God's judgment. His mercy triumphed over judgment in the sacrifice of His Son. Our surety assumed our guilt and was punished for our crimes. God poured out on Jesus what we deserved. He put to death the Prince of Life so that we would never taste death. So that we would not die in our sins. Our Savior drank to the dregs the full measure of God's wrath that we deserved so that we might be delivered. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Brethren, we are saved by God's unmerited loving kindness and faithfulness in Jesus. Thirdly, let us praise and thank the Lord for our present strength and continued usefulness. We see this in verses 10 through 15. Contrast the, the terrible plight of the wicked, their terrifying prospect of divine judgment, with the present happy condition and the bright future prospects of the righteous man who trusts in the Lord. David's imagery is instructive. He speaks of the horn, the wild ox, of our might and our strength, our influence, of being anointed with fresh oil. 
This was done on festive occasions. It speaks of our strength and comfort and prosperity that God grants the righteous through His providence. And of course, the oil speaks about the Spirit of God Himself. The images of flourishing like a palm tree and growing like a cedar in Lebanon. Palm tree is a very useful tree. Every part of it is used. It's straight as, as a string. The inner part, the wood, the outer part, the, the palm, palms that fall, the uh, coconuts. It's all used. It speaks of being useful and unbending. Growing like a cedar in Lebanon. They were, they were famous in their day and probably still are. For being strong. They live long. Some of them live a thousand years. And they're fragrant. I love the smell of freshly sawn cedar. It perfumes drawers in, in our house. Being planted in the house of the Lord, there's the secret of their strength and their godliness. That's the, that's the secret of their perseverance. Full of sap and very green Yielding fruit in old age. All these images speak for themselves. The point is this. The Lord will continually grant new strength to all who trust Him to perform all the services that He requires of them, even down to their old age. So Paul promises, does he not? Philippians 1.6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Chapter 2 and verse 13. He has work all the way to the end. That's why Paul says, when his head is soon to be lopped off by, by Rome, send to me the parchments. Send to me the books. He wants to be continually useful until the day he gasps his last breath. The meaning of verse 11 troubles some people. And my eye has looked exultantly upon my foes. My ears hear of the evil doers who rise against me. Commentators argue about this italicized word exultantly or with desire it might read. In your Bible, it reads literally, And my eye has looked upon my foes, my ears hear of the, of the evildoers who rise up against me. I don't think he's speaking there with a vindictive spirit. He's speaking not really as a private person, but as a public person, as a king. He represents the people of God before God. Mr. Gill is probably right when he observes that the psalmist's promise of God's punishment of the wicked arose not from a spirit of private revenge, but from a reward, or excuse me, regard to the glory of God and the honor of His name. And in no other view could the destruction of fellow creatures, though His enemies, be grateful to Him. God's people long to see their enemies bow before God in worship. And yet see God's destruction of those that are impenitent as being just and good. Brethren, a sober joy should characterize our contemplation of these realities. 
What is plain is that each of the Lord's grateful people will openly declare that the Lord is upright, He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in Him. God's preservation assures us of our perseverance in the way of grace and faith. God will never abandon old saints. He will not only keep them alive physically, He will give their hands work to do all the way until He removes their strength and takes them to glory. And therefore, if you're here and you're an older person, don't say, well, my work is done. I'm going to leave it to all the young people. No, you're to be full of sap, are you not? Aren't you to be fruitful to the very end? And I'm encouraged when I see that in older saints. You keep coming to the place where God meets with His people. There you'll gain strength. There you'll be made fully sappy, if I can use that expression, so that the Lord may use you until He calls you home. And He promises to keep the young all the way to glory. The lyrics of the hymn writer capture the spirit of the psalmist. Even down to old age, all my people shall prove my sovereign, eternal, unchangeable love. And when hoary hairs their temple shall adorn, like lambs they shall still in my bosom be born. Because we're little lambs all the way to the end. Well, three parting counsels this morning. Very briefly. First of all, let God's people joyfully ponder and humbly thank Him for His many blessings. Don't the promises in this passage inspire joy in your heart? Don't they help correct your thinking about this life and about your troubles and trials? Joyfully ponder and humbly thank God for His many blessings. Let me ask you, what works of God call for your joyful singing? Are you not one of those works of God yourself? Does the contemplation of God's infinite thoughts inspire your earnest praise? What has God done to make you glad? Let me put it this way. What hasn't God done to make you glad? Because you can you ask that question in light of Romans 8 and verse 28, and it'll put a smile on your face. He's causing all things to work together for your good. He's keeping you amidst your deepest trials and troubles. He's causing His Son to rise upon you full of hope. He's bearing with you in your sins and rebellion. He leads you to repentance. Indeed, what blessing do you have that hasn't come from Him? Secondly, let the thankless repent of their ingratitude and seek God's greatest blessing. Romans 2, verses 4 and 5. Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Open your eyes to see all the blessings around you. Think of what you deserve in light of the blessings that you enjoy. 
Paul goes on to say in verse 5, but because of your stubbornness, you have a stiff neck, you won't look up. And an unrepentant heart, you have unbent knees. You are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. John 3 and verse 16, For God so loved the world, a world of rebels. Indeed, our names are written there, are they not? And God has taken our names and scratched them off of His world's roster, and they've been written in the Lamb's book of life, in the crimson ink of the blood of Christ. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He, this is the gift. He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's why the prophet says, Why will you die? You have the promise of salvation. Repent of your sins. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that they would repent. Thirdly, lastly, let us thank the Lord for His promise to sustain and grow us in His grace. Let us show our gratitude to the Lord Most High by serving Him as long as He gives us life and breath and opportunity with a sense of joy. Let me ask you, in what ways can you be serving God that you're not serving Him right now? Do you pray for opportunities to serve Him? Brethren, let us reckon that serving such a God is the greatest of all possible privileges because it is. We're serving the King of the universe. There's no such thing as menial labor when the Lord God is seated upon the throne. All of our work is sacred. All of the things that we do as we do unto Him, they have a smile upon them. It is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to thy name, O Most High, to declare thy loving kindness in the morning and thy faithfulness by night, to declare that the Lord is upright, he is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Well, may the contemplation of these things kindle afresh a grateful spirit in us all to sing God's praise and to thank him from whom all blessings flow. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what tongue can sound the praise that is worthy of your glorious name? Certainly no tongue in the mouths of any here. But we thank you that we have that desire, if we be your people, to have those thousand tongues to sing your praise. Oh, our great and glorious Redeemer, give us that desire not just when we gather for worship on the Lord's day, to have a proper disposition that's worthy of the glorious duty of believer priests of bringing praise to your name. Lord, every day of the week, when the day comes, when things are dark and difficult, help us to sing praises to you who hold us in your hands, that as it is the day that you've made, and you will not leave us or forsake us in it, that you'll give us grace to, to persevere through whatever you bring into our lives with our eyes fixed upon Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. 
For we pray these things in his exalted name. Amen.